I'll just tell one small story and how people are arguing so much about what to do and not to do. And, you know, humanity will move through this with people who have all kinds of medical beliefs. I know Seventh-day Adventists who are never inoculated for anything, or people of various um, religious traditions where they work with medicine or no surgery. John will have uh, patients from certain traditions where no blood is to be exchanged. Right? So he can have an ill patient whose religion will prevent them from receiving a transfusion, even if it might save their life. So a few months ago, he and colleagues tried to save someone without using transfusions, honoring science and their faith. And they succeeded. It was slightly exhausting to him. So he was irritated that he couldn't simply do what he scientifically knew to treat them. It would have had them coming back to life within an hour, rather than almost losing them over four days. And five doctors being exhausted by it. And then there are other patients and families having to cope with that belief system. It was irritating to him. But he also said it would change their blood if we brought the blood of another person into it. And then he said, but isn't the blood of Jesus and Moses and in all of us? It was like, how could they just not enter a universal field with him? And he goes, but they couldn't. So they worked with it in a certain way. So we're in a system now where people will have many principles of what they're trying to embody through how they address the pandemic. And someone will ask me, well, you know, is it that serious? And John's answer to them will be, well, you know, you could die from this. You could be fine. You could be asymptomatic or you could die. And then the person will go, but I don't want to die. He goes, I know. So then he leaves it up to them what to do about that. He doesn't try to tell them what to do about it. And then they'll ask him, well, what did you do? He said, I was vaccinated. That's what I did. And then he leaves it up to them what to do. One of my closest colleagues is not vaccinated and flew across the country to meet her new grandchild. It was very important to her to simply come into the system of her life in a specific way without the vaccine, even though her, one of her sons is, a, is an allopathic physician, the father of the grandchild, actually. But she wanted to not have the vaccine, and she's writing a beautiful book called Tree of Grace. It's just incredible. This is Camille Hominsky. Incredible book. She and John are very close. It's interesting. Very different perspectives on how to be. And then the danger point that comes forward compassionately is, um, I told this story to someone last night, I, I was in Africa years ago and I took a 16-year-old young man with me, both Blaine and myself, and he had never been vaccinated against anything. His family dealt with uh, medicine homeopathically and very natural diet and just a wonderful young man. He's about, you know, about 30 years old now. So he had just turned 16. And I went to dinner with his family, and they, we talked about him wanting to go, and I said, well, there's one challenge, there's one condition. He will have to be vaccinated against polio if he comes with me. He doesn't have to be, but if he isn't, I will not take him. And they were upset about it. Well, couldn't we do this? I said, well, 
there's no homeopathic that I know of that will prevent him because there's active polio there. Well, what if he doesn't get it? I said, well, I, I won't take him because I've been around it. I said, I've been around brutal diseases. I managed a refugee camp hospital in 1979 with 40,000 refugees, one doctor, two uh, workers from uh, sort of the AIDS groups in Switzerland, New York, and myself, and 40,000 refugees. And on days when United Nations food didn't come, nobody in the camp ate. And the levels of disease I've seen there or at Mother Teresa's house for the dying in Calcutta and been around active typhoid, typhus, cholera, incurable levels of tuberculosis. I, I've been around great human suffering and I was aware it would be wonderful if he weren't exposed to it, but we would be walking through villages and cities where it would be around him. So they talked about it and then they said to me, we're going to have him vaccinated against polio and he was and he came. And he wanted to go off uh, once for a little hike up on Table Mountain in Cape Town. And then a second time up at Victoria Falls, uh, which crosses the Zambezi River between Botswana and, um, and uh, uh, Zimbabwe. And so he went across the bridge and he came back to me very chastened. And he wanted me to walk with him. So I came out across the area. And he had met two young women in saris. They were... Um, visiting as tourists from, I believe, from South Africa. And they were standing talking to him, and they were as close to him as this stool is to me. And one of them had gone blind in the last three weeks because she had active polio. And so Logan just stood and looked at me, and I just was present with him. Would he have been fine? And he said to me after, but she's blind. And I said, yes, and unless something miraculous happens, she will never see again in this body. And he was aware that he w would not contract what she had. Is it perfect? No. Was it, it was the best answer I knew to protect him. The other way I could have protected him is to say, you could stay unvaccinated and I just won't take you with me. Africa. Our love will continue in the same way. I wouldn't have judged him, but it would be a different rhythm of protecting him and other people and myself, his family. Right? So as you go through this and all the dissonance going on with people, we are as a civilization are moving through a disease. So I think it for you to just find your own conscience and your, your way of being with it. And then I personally believe that a great deal of what's going on in humanity goes into this shadow of whether we would have had a third world war or not. So we're, we're not entering that. But I, I talked at length yesterday for people who weren't here about um, seeing Hitler and Stalin and some of the other beings who have been a great part of the shadow of human history home in a constellation. They're in bodies currently and they're in their 30s right now, and um, they could have caused a, a dissonant argument adequately moving through humanity to create like a, a, great, a great shadow that we would have played out. And uh, that has been resolved through the work of many people, I'm sure. And so we talked about the good faith that um, we're beyond that now. 
and kind of coming into a time when there's a global civilization and a kind of pop-up tent uh, matrix of these conscious children all over the world who form a structure adequate for a translation point as a global society all across the world. So if I go into why we have a shadow that was so deep, my own experience as a human being would be in talking about remembrance, which we did somewhat yesterday, when we recapitulate ourselves, when people work on themselves in yoga, psychotherapy, awareness, meditation, yoga, even choosing what one wants to study, finding one's ancestry, or going back to a place where we were as a child or where we were born or where our parents are from, we often find a place in the weaving of our life where there was a missing thread and we go, oh, I didn't know that. And we feel something awakening in us, like a, like, a, like a firefly, like a little incandescent light of awareness comes forward. And when we integrate that in ourselves, we have a greater capacity of love and of being fully present. So the recapitulation going back is more a directional turning and then moving into a graceful present. That image I used from uh, the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 2, verse 5. She, Mary turns to the servants at the wedding of Cana, and she asks them, whatever my son tells you, do, or whatever my son asks of you, enact. Right? Whatever is with him, whatever we be with him, do. So the mother of being and the son of being do something. And it goes forward, and the wedding is somehow blessed. What happened? I, I can't say we understand it, but you know, we all understand it. I go, oh, heaven happened on earth at a wedding with a mother and a son, and some people taking care of six big clay uh, you know, containers of water. What happened? Well, it happened to all of us, everyone. It's part of the weaving of all of us. It's part of the wedding that brought forward the children of all families from that point. It isn't about theology. And then we feel in ourselves pregnant with the anticipation, well then what are we to do? And when we have an adequate history recapitulated, we tend to be rather autonomous or healthy, or we're not perfect, but we're relatively whole. And so when we embody a gesture toward the future, it tends to be healthy. The vessel, the vase holding the flowers, is able to be fulfilled. The water's not all pouring out. The vase isn't broken into shards and going to cut everybody. But when we're wounded and inadequately formed, we, we lash out like that. And then unfortunately we've done that with each other, thinking, don't get near my vase, you know. And I go, but don't you want them to be with the flowers of who you are? See, we go, my identity is that vase. I go, well, I know that, but, and this vase is this, and this vase is that, but isn't it about having them be transparent enough that we can respect them and have the garden become autonomous? That's, that's, that's the mystery. It's not that difficult, but it does require great sensitivity and, and great love. So if we go back into this reason for the huge arguments in humanity, 
in, in my thinking about these things very deeply. And I've, t I've told this story twice, and this is probably the last time I'll really have to ever talk about it. Historically, there's a great deal talked about the Archangel Gabriel comes at times when something prophetic or numinous or of heaven not known yet on earth is going to occur. He's the harbinger of the dawn of something in consciousness and a, and a sacred blessing which teaches us but endows us with a light and sound and creation we didn't quite know before. He's like a, like he opens the threshold to the next day and we enter a chapter we didn't know before. And we don't have to be a person from the Abrahamic faith to be attentive to Gabriel. One of the only beliefs in all world religions is that of angels, right? The, the only other shared belief is the golden rule. They are the only two beliefs that permeate all the world's religions. Isn't it interesting that angels permeate all the world's religions? So Gabriel is pretty universally respected. So somehow his place in the lives of us all is a gathering force for unity. So he came to apparently a young woman in the Holy Land when she was very young, 12 or 13, and presented to her that she would bear a child. But he didn't tell her how it would happen. She asked him, how shall this occur because I don't know man? And he didn't answer her. Well, he, he did, but he didn't answer her in a direct scientific way. And then we know that she had a child at the age of 14. Some people talk about her having twins, and there's a great deal of scholarship going on, and how can we find enough about that in the elder twin? Even the Hopi talk about the older twin. And then until the white man, the, the people with very white skin, and other people with them came in massive numbers, if they came with a cross, they were to be respected, but not believed about anything because if they come with that simple, they don't know who they are. But if they come with a cross in a circle, they're to be welcome as family. But they need to know about the older twin who has the shepherd's crook and plants the corn and just lives this life of heaven on earth. They call him Massah, and he comes at every era to bring in this harbinger the way Gabriel would announce. Right? And so the Hopi, your great medicine men in Hopi, would refuse to be baptized or Christianized. Many of, their, many of the men historically were not, and the wives would be. So a man would pray in a traditional way, and then the woman would pray in a traditional way, but also then bring in Jesus. But the men would stand with the older twin and the younger twin. Just interesting that they were adamant about doing this. So if we take the being Mary, I was in a meeting, one of the Father Keating Snowmass meetings I'm part of a group of. This is wonderful group of colleagues. We meet once a month and have a Zoom meeting internationally. And we talk about different principles for an hour every month. <clears throat> about a year and a half ago, a rabbi who's in his 80s talked about one of the greatest pains for him. And he said, well, you know, the fear for us is the destruction that happens when we bring something that is not accepted. And he said, like, for example, about Jesus' father. And so I thought, what, what is he talking about? He said, you know, we know his name. 
He was one of Mary's neighbors. His name was, I don't know his name. I'll have to ask the rabbi. He stated his name. He said, we've had it written down for 2,000 years. There was a neighbor of Mary's. Someone knocked at the door one evening and she called, Joseph, is that you? And she opened the door. And he said, this man, and then he named the name, forced himself upon her. It's written in our text. And then he said that during the Inquisitions, there were 12,000 copies of this handwritten in parts of France and Belgium and surrounding areas that were taken and destroyed, and many of the sacred men killed. So we don't like to talk about this. And we ask, are there copies that still exist? Yes, there are several copies that exist. We know there's a copy in the Vatican Library, or more than one. He said that in his lifetime, he's in his 80s now, uh, there was a man with a completely photographic memory who was sent down to, and was allowed to take it out and look at it and read it and then come back up and transcribe it all. But there still are several of the old copies as well. Where they are, I don't know. And he said there was a modern press that's very well respected internationally that has wanted to publish it, but many of the rabbis don't want it published because they're afraid that there will be uh, sort of a terrible holocaust all over again. He said because there's a lot to be noted in this and what people believe. But when he said it, I was aware, oh, Jesus' father. It's Trinley Dorje in Tibet. He's 35. No wonder the shadow around him was so big. We never remembered who he is. The couple weren't allowed to marry. I'm sure he thought, well, if I'm with her, they'll have to let us be married. But no, he was from a different tribe. Interesting. So the parents just didn't let them get married. I'm as sure of this as I am of my mother's love for me. I can feel it in every part of my being. So when I met him at 14, and he saw me, he just watched me go across the room. And then I turned as I left back to him, and I was aware, I will not fail you. Did I understand? I understood that we were not to fail one another in this water into wine. So I think because it is a difficult story for him, and I'm sure a difficult story for Mary, who's now a young man in his 20s and out in the Southwest. And then, well, what is it to be a Christian then? Did Gabriel come to Mary? I imagine so. Did Mary understand what, what would happen to her? And my own experience of her is that she never fell from that posture of grace and then was married to a man who was old enough to be her father. Joseph was in his 40s. He was a widower. We know that he had several children. And so she went forward with Joseph and bore her child or children. And then scholars talk about them having more children after she and Joseph having other children. And different scholars and theologians believe different things, but it's part of the discussion theologically. So if we talk about the woman, and we're at a time now with a great deal in feminism and Me Too arguments, 
where we've not adequately included the men in our conversations. Feminism is to hold the self-regard for women and yet to bow to and include that regard for men beside us so we can enter inadequate humanism. So in the water to wine, Jesus also apparently is the son of not only Mary, but of a man and of God. So if a person believes that she was conceived, Jesus was conceived in an immaculate way without sexuality, that's fine. They can hold a viewpoint of the child somehow coming by grace or mystery. But in allowing that place of the shadow of what we left out in recapitulating a story, if we bring that father in and something in him awakens to the capacities in him as one of the heads of a Buddhist lineage, then in the generations younger than myself, we have a great protector rising up as a patriarch, right? Who's almost completely enlightened. And then we have other young people, Chinli Tai, who's in France, who is another aspect of the Karmapa. The two young men met and uh, spent time together about a year and a half to two years ago. I think it would be two years ago this coming autumn. They, they came together at my request to, to be together and find their shared work. And they made a declaration to humanity that they would work together. Right? So something is happening between two men who are not carrying weapons, but practicing deep Buddhism. One of them is married to his childhood friend, and they have a little boy who the men also met the little boy had been born then. So there's a holy family occurring. Okay? So, so that shadow to me, it was imperative that that be brought to the light. Because when we argue and don't know something, we often are hostile and fight and cause horrific uh, karmas between and among us because we don't know what to do. We don't always know how to reconcile something. And isn't it interesting that the rain would start? I mean, we knew it was going to rain, but, well, we knew it might rain. But the, I thought yesterday, well, I'm going to talk about this one point, and I'll bet the rain will start about the time I'm going to talk about it. Because the Hopi would think that the greatest blessing of all is the rain, because they have so little of it. You know, and so I didn't stop talking when people started working on the tent, because I thought, well, here we go, and the rain is coming, and you know this quality where for one's children and one's children's children, there is a way for them to know how to live on the earth without destroying it. Right? That's so interesting to me. And Buddhism is the idea that the being who falls knows the whole way down and then the whole way back up. So if you look at the, the fierce protectors of the Buddhist temples when they paint them in tonkas or carve them in figures, you know, they'll, they'll look terrifying. And they're considered the most benevolent because their suffering has been the greatest. Yeah, so. And then my hope is that while, while the rabbi, while Rabbi Hoffman is still alive, that this could be somehow brought forward, if it's important. I don't know the name of my great-great-grandfathers on either side of my family, but I'm of them. So do we need to have the book published, or is it enough that it's written in the Book of Life? And we go on and, you know, we have all these places where we might have had 
great chaos and war on the earth and instead we get up and collaborate and do this together. Yeah, so thank you because I there's a certain place in being an audience for uh, receiving something, whether we believe it or not, that is a certain courage and, and I thank you for that. And I was aware that I didn't know anyone on the earth who would kill me for this. I've, I've been able to live in such a way that uh, people don't have to like me or agree with me, but there is an ease of harmony that has been <clears throat> given to me, meeting people all over the world of all different systems where always there could be a finding of, of a fluency of grace, water and wine. So. <coughs> yeah. so now I want to turn our attention to that which is beautiful, and that would be Amy's garden. <coughs> and in that quality, uh, what I found is that historically, when, when we're raising a child, we raise them to protect their life. So the parents are protective of the child and bring the child forward so he or she can survive to embody their path. And a great deal of it is making sure they know how to swim or stay warm or cool or uh, be careful of something treacherous, be careful of something dangerous, have enough um, strength of character to defend themselves and to refine themselves, to form a sophisticated enough personality that they can cope with the society out around them. So being like me was taught many things. I'll, I'll go to my dad. He taught me how to shoot when I was four years old. He gave me a gun that was too big for me. And my mother said to him later, I can't believe you did this, Bill. And he said, well, I wanted her not to enjoy guns. Right? And then he bought me a huge gun when I was in Alaska because a bear had come to a village I was in and was stalking a, a very little child. And when my dad heard about that and heard how poorly sighted in the gun was, with the family I was staying with, uh, 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 one of I lived with an uh, Eskimo family for their autumn hunt season. The first year I was out of college, and we went up the Togiak River and camped for three or four days, uh, gathering salmon. It was just incredible. However, Al shot at a bear and missed the bear by about twelve feet, and I got so upset with him. He goes, "Oh, guess it's not sighted in." And I went, "Al," because I thought if you'd hit the bear, you would have wounded the bear. And his perspective was different than mine. There were many bear out there. Mine was, I didn't want the bear to be injured. I wanted the bear either hunted for the meat for the family and, and the skin and the claws that would actually be completely utilized or not shot at at all. Right? We were from two very different cultures. He was half Yupik Eskimo and half Laplander. But when my father heard the story, there was a satellite phone in, in the center of the village in the community hall, so I, I would call my parents once a week and talk with them. And one person could talk at a time, you know, it would go, and then my dad would start talking. Then he would stop. It was like over, over. So I told them the story, and my mother said the next day he went to a gun place and bought a 464. If any of you were hunters, he bought this huge gun with a massive sight in it, and he said to me, Elizabeth, just aim the gun in the direction of the barrier. A really good shot. Just aim the gun. And he, he apologized. He said, it'll knock you down on your back. Just like when I was a little four-year-old, right? Because I, I did. I fell down the first time I shot a gun. So I, I never had to use the gun. But he knew that I was in really remote areas of the bush 
where there was no protection. He wasn't just trying to protect me. He was trying to protect anyone in my orbit through how he was raising me, right? So if someone says to me, well, you're a pacifist because you don't understand, I go, well, I used to dress deer with my father in the garage. I brought in the birds he hunted. I fished with him from when I was a little girl. I, I know like more survival skills than any woman I've ever met, although I'm not a great outdoors woman now because I, I can't hike and walk. The injuries kept me as a contemplative. You know, or you'd find, where's that woman? She's, where's that woman we heard of? Up in the mountains somewhere. That's, you know, that's where I would be. So in the domain of that kind of living, my father taught me how to survive in any place on the earth through reading the land and sky from his father and my other grandfather, knowing the ecosystem of plants and animals and water, safe water, and warmth and heat and cool and cold. Right, so you could put me anywhere on the earth and there would be a capacity to survive, but really the capacity for the vase to hold the bouquet of my life, not just safely, but beautifully, with beauty, right? My father and my grandfathers taught me it is beautiful in this world. If you had nothing, not even a penknife or a sweater, it would be beautiful. So if I'm around the poorest person in the world, um, you know, homeless person with maggots in their wounds in Calcutta, and I helped them to get to Mother Teresa's years ago, when people were walking by them just leaving this old woman to die, I could not leave her. I simply could not leave her. I knew there will be a million women like her. This one I cannot leave. She is my portion. She is right in front of me as I walk out the door of where I'm staying, and I, I will not leave her. And so, you know, she had nothing, but she had everything. And I would not leave that in her, right? This bouquet of God in that broken vase, dying, was exquisite water into wine. Right? We all understand this. And then, you know, I would walk into the Cornell Club in New York City to get ready to speak at the United Nations. And if I didn't have a good enough suit on, a thousand people would have thought, oh, it's that woman, she's too heavy, needs a diet. Oh, she, you know, she, the suit's okay, but it's not a whatever suit. You know, she has her nails done, that's nice, that's a nice touch. I guess she's all right. And what does she have to say? So I would have to meet the vast, sophisticated cruelty of warfare in the human race and walk through it and still be able to represent the beauty of the transparent vase. Yep, that suit. Yep, my hair in a French twist. Yes, my, my grandmother's pearls. Here we are and then water into wine. Okay, so that quality of protection is not about fighting. It's about the survival, not of you as a human being, in an identity that is defensive or opaque, but an identity that is transparent. And then we can find a way of meeting. Oh, and you dressed like this, and, and you like this, and that beautiful color, and your hat and your scarf. And, and then what occurs is we start to open 
to something that happens in philosophy and physics that I have never seen meet before, but the last maybe seven to eight months, I go, oh good, here we go. Not an enlightenment of one person, but the movement of consciousness from the present and future where eternity is like coming back through us and we can remember who we are in heaven here, right? So historically, an enlightened person, we study the personality, like how did the Buddha do this? Or we go sit with uh, Mother Mira or Krishnamurti or Anandamayama or you know, any one of a million people who seem to find like a candle flame in themselves of the divine. And then we seek to find that in ourselves by practicing being somewhat like them or near them or we have their picture or we read a, a poem that they've written because we, we go, could that light that was enlightened in them and that, that sound, that holy sound received in them from heaven, could, could I have that too? Could I please have that too? And we practice our own enlightenment or our own realization and we enter these deep states of silence and the argument of everything we have to work out to break through into that and how it might answer us back. And we go through the, the difficulty of the world fighting. No, 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 no. Because every being who awakens calls light forward and holy sound forward in every other being. Right? So when you awaken and you move toward that, every time someone wanted a woman to vote beside a man, that went into every woman and every man, until women vote, right? It just becomes this critical mass of a certain understanding, a certain wisdom, which actually becomes love embodied. That's what happens. So as this would happen in one being or another, in many of these beings we study historically, we would tend to form a school. Oh, there's Buddhism. Oh, there's this school of Buddhism. Oh, there's this school in studying Guru Nanak's work. Oh, there's this one in doing mantram from the, from the Sikh tradition. Oh, there's this one in doing Hatha yoga from the Sikh tradition. No, there's this one in the, the dietary cuisine of the Sikh tradition. And then you'd find harmonies and disagreements and then you'd have a being like Yogananda where people would study him and they would agree and disagree about what he said. And they would publish his works one way, unedited, and then someone else would edit them. And the two schools of people would, would disagree with one another. So you'd have, it would be like siblings. You'd have three or four schools of thought coming from Yogananda's work. And yet they were trying to practice awakening in the way that he did whatever this was that occurred in him. So as that quality has been present, uh, I've been aware of this, I couldn't tell you for how long, I just was aware that it was tangible to me. And I was aware that there was no reason for it not to happen. And if it could happen, then people could find their way with each other beyond warfare. Because you could turn to another person and it wouldn't just have to be the trust you have in your husband or your brother or your daughter or your mother. You could turn and find that in each other 
just like the Buddha found in his enlightenment, right? There could be enough reconciliation, you feel it as I talk about it, there could be enough reconciliation and harmonic recapitulation of what it is to be a human being and enough of the shadows worked out in the, the larger human culture that we could say, are we enough in our health as a collective globally that we could do this now? And then heaven did not only answer individuals, but started answering through the relationships in the individuals. And it's like a singing. It has a quality almost like a singing. <clears throat> and so what's begun to happen is the flickering of that enlightenment or that awakening or that Christ force or whatever we want to call it, and I'm calling it water into wine. right? And so as that ripens in each one of us, then we begin to know, well, this is my path. And I welcome your path. And then who are we together? It's almost as if it's what war is if it were transformed into civilization. One nation faces another and goes, you, China, you, America. And then we go, let's have tea. <laughs> People go, Where, where's the bad guy? I go, inside of us and inside of you. And, Where's the tea from? This province in China. Where's the cup from? This potter in Vermont. Right? Where's the fight I go? I, historically, it was, you know, when we didn't know how to grow up enough to take good care of mom and be appropriate about the flowers in the garden. Right? So <clears throat> what happens when you come into a situation you'll come in and you'll find the places in you that want to have the density of a separate existence, like it's me, or your, your thoughts are there, or the electromagnetic qualities of your aura, your feelings. And you'll realize something is going on beyond that. So the more you can work to let your temporal bodies, the parts of you that are conceived and born and die, the more you can let those be fluid and sort of um, as, if they, as if they weren't uh, like just physical matter, as if they were porous. So the wine moves through them into the next person. You'll realize, oh, that state is present and I can reassure the next person that it's all right. And then they may be reassuring me as they realize it's all right for that wine to pass back the water into wine from them to me or to another. And anything in you that is incomplete in your confidence in yourself or your ease within yourself as just kind of modesty or humility or self-respect and dignity and, and confidence, those places in you, you still just need to take gentle care of as they mature. That's you, the human being. That's the vessel in you that expresses its path. It's also the part of you that was conceived and born and will die. It's the part of you that strives to understand and can but can't understand. So just take care of that. Oh yes, the human being that I am, the vessel, the, the, the wine glass. And then the quality of the movement of the water into wine, you'll go, how did we not know how to do this? It's because it wasn't a critical mass where someone had declared it safe yet. If it wasn't safe, 
and your child moved into this fully, they wouldn't be able to handle it. If it were a lot easier, my body would be about 80 pounds lighter. I wouldn't have circles under my eyes. But I mean, I look great. You know, I mean, it's, I, I don't look like I'm a ravaged woman who was carrying it off the fields of, of, of some horrific war and anguish upon the earth. You know, it's like it was a rough ride. But I did understand it through this incarnation. So I've been practicing this quality for about 15 years. I would go someplace and say to Blaine, I have to go out into that area and do something ceremonial. Then let's go into a cafe somewhere and get something to drink from the people in this town. And then let me get something from this area, a stone, a feather, a possession to purchase like a candle to bring home with me from, so that it was moving through everything. And I was the sort of the messenger for it. But let's say that it was Mary's message. I just got to represent it. That's why I utilized her as the instrument. She was ready to do this 2,000 years ago. It's pretty interesting. We were not ready for her. When Camille and I talk, she, she was Mary's sister, Mary Cleophas, and her husband, Kabir, was named Cleophas. They were two people who were present around most of the mature teaching of Jesus. And so, you know, Camille has this quality in her where she is of that lineage. It's just in her. It's who she is historically. Yet she has a very ordinary, quiet, private life. She's a mother of three adult children, two sons and a daughter, grandmother of, of three children, a, a boy and two girls. Her, her grandson is in Japan. His first language is Japanese. Her granddaughters are in Portland, Oregon, with her father and her daughter-in-law. The other father and daughter are in Japan. Her daughter, Kara, is in Southern California with her husband, Jimmy. And I brought a fan with me. Uh, Kara and Jimmy were married in Vermont, in Putney, several years ago. And you know how brides will have little favors? So she chose a fan. Right? It's a little sandalwood fan. I didn't go to the wedding. I was invited and I said to her, I am not well enough to come because I have to hold a place for what your wedding and marriage are to be. And the best way for me to do is just be at home because my body won't be able to handle it. right? And so we have the fan. So water into wine. And then you go, what happened? I go, well, there's no weapon anywhere. And there starts to be an ecstatic quality in creation. We go, I, I didn't know that that existed. I go, well, it wasn't safe. We would have fought through it. It wasn't revealed to us until we were mature enough. Now, parents put the fine things up on the shelves because or the musician waits for the melody and, and then all of a sudden they're somewhere and the melody comes or the, the line of the poem is just there. Right? because the poet or musician will not do violence with it. But the bouquet of God is given to the poet or the musician, or Kara and Jimmy, and all of us today, like the wedding feast at Cana. You feel that. So to me, from this day, I've never heard this talked about before by anyone. doesn't mean people haven't, I've just never heard it. So with everything in me as a mystic, I am certain it is safe for you to live this.
So I've practiced it for about almost 17 years. And I've been beaten to a pulp. Blaine would think, do you really have to do this? And this one place I go, I really do. And then he'd be like, okay. And then I would just come in and practice something, come out and be fine but exhausted. Because, you know, what does she want? What will she do if she dominates something or rules over something or causes harm? But it was always just the face. I would be the face, and then K would be heavens. So here we sit, and from this place at Joseph and Amy's home in this area of Montpelier in Vermont, we will have talked about this, like the Buddha did his first talk at the Deer Park in, in Sarnath, which I visited and had a remarkable time with a very handicapped man who lived there. He walked beside me, and one of the women who died last year, who was with us, tried to get him to go and apologize. She was quite cruel to him, and I, I told her, please, please just let him walk with me. But I don't want him bothering you in this sublime place. And I said, he's not bothering me, and he's looking for his own enlightenment in this sublime place. So he walked beside me. He had a very distorted, disfigured body, and he asked me, why was I born in this form? It is so rejected in my culture. And I said to him, it wasn't rejected by me. I was pretty much the first person who he had met who had treated him with mutual respect. Two vases walking side by side. In the open field, there's never been a temple built there. There's no charger to go there. There's, there's just the field where the Buddha talked and the only beings there were a small group and the deer and the trees. There were no deer when we were there, but the trees that are the descendants of the trees and this lovely man. So I, I stayed for a bit and talked to him about the difficult karma that he had, the difficult vase, that I would never forget him. I would pray for him throughout my life. What a joy it was to meet him. And I said, this is your home. You get to live right here and practice. Right. So see, he also is in Amy's garden, if he's still alive. His body was so difficult, he may not have uh, lived for more than another 10 or 15 years, even though he wasn't that old. So we're here, and the one place that will be called forward is, there'll be the ecstasy of the water into wine, and then you'll have something happen every day where just like that young man, you're needed to extend the, the blessing of that. So something will be brought to you where you are developing a muscle of compassion, inclusion, virtue, sort of honor, by how you are with the other person. You might need to say no to them. No, you're being too cruel. We need to not be that cruel. They could say, oh, well, I don't want to be, and I have the right to be angry. They can say, well, anger, anger is always masking loss. What's under your anger? I'm not upset. I'm just telling you what, it, what it's like. And you go, well, I, you must have some loss under that, under that, under that hostility. But then you have to not judge them now. See, so our, our old propensity of, I'll go to my mind and I'll judge them, and I'll tell them, I go, no, you have to keep the, 
container where you're you're allowing this grace of water into wine and you'll do well and then you'll have a place where you go oh i'm learning i'm learning so that the vase becomes more and more able to be present with it then you can go back into places of your life that have meaning to you of history and kind of balance them so i have a collection of fans if anybody ever sees me teach something there some of them are kind of behind me in a study where i sit at home but when i was in china in 1995 for the big un conference i walked down the scholar street in, in beijing it's a famous old street with beautiful uh, calligraphic pens and little ink pots excuse me and the scholar in china was considered the vase and they would have uh, like a pen or a, a pen stand and several brushes hanging on it and a little bowl to put water in and a little water dropper and they might have a little place to rest the pen or the brush against and these accoutrements were considered reference points for them to remember the alignment of their virtue so that when they received a, a sort of a blessing or inspiration and then they created they had the form of those items around them to remember the person they were to be it was considered the highest form in the society it goes back to confucius being the one ancestor cosmologically in in the sort of ideas of the Chinese people. They were to bring that form of the masculine into life in that way. And then the flow of Taoism. So it's, it's very beautiful to me. So when I walked down that scholar street, I came into uh, one shop and the men would have their birds hanging. They don't do that so much anymore, but they would have these beautiful bamboo bird cages hanging and they would bring their birds out and take them for walks in the morning and hang them up and kind of sit and have cigarettes and tea with other men. And the birds would visit and the men would visit and then they'd go home. And <clears throat> so walking down this street that's only about a half mile long, I came into this one shop and there were two matching fans. They were just uh, carved out of wood. They were simple, N no embellishment, just, just wooden panels in the fan and a, a small piece of silk fabric at the top uh, kind of a light almost a maple colored wood and there were two of them so I bought one for Camille and one for me and I came home and sent one to her why did Kira use a fan at her wedding I don't know I haven't asked her remembrance love embodied where's Camille's fan now I know she has it mine is framed behind me where I sit, her daughter's life, her daughter's wedding and marriage, water into wine. And then as we face the future, we realize, wait, we don't have a weapon here. I go, no, the vase has to be adequate to be unafraid to receive peace, great peace, to wage peace, to wage harmonics. Rudolf Steiner talked about some of this, this quality of coming forward and bringing transcendence. You know, if you use any Waleda product, this is present within it. It's just present. It's present. So all across the globe now, it would be safe for you to embody what vessel can I become 
so transparent and clear, so much myself, that the bouquet of heaven can move through it every breath of my life. And then the work of some of the great masters like Thich Nhat Hanh, who's going to be 96, I think, this year, still alive, breathing, practicing. He has known that he was like a harbinger of this. He, he's called people to this his whole life. And then at some point, he'll fall away, having been a grandfather of this. Really, a tremendous grandfather of this. And Sister Fong beside him, who I think is in France now. Yeah. So when you do this, you, the one place to be careful is all the aspects of hostility people will direct at you, consciously, unconsciously, because they're sure we have to go back to the present and the past of what your tribe did to my tribe and what you might do to me and what I could do to you. And I go, that just let that be woven. Let that be fulfilled. Let that be the, the wine that is aging in the cellar that's taken out now and poured into a glass and shared. Right? The courage is a gesture just like that. Not of becoming enweaponed, but becoming like filled with that grace. And it's not your grace. It's not just your history. It's why I refer, well, let this be Mary's history. We'll let this be whatever she has held as, a, as an icon of um, inspiration and respect globally. This could be her story. We have been able to fulfill one of our ancestral matriarchs and the men and women around her and for the sake of the children who are here all over the world. And then they start learning how to play and learn the ways they need to be strong and resilient for nature, for various ages of their life, for how they are with humanity. But they don't close down from the grace of heaven. They don't close down from the wine that has already been caused through Mary and Jesus and many other beings. That they, They're going to just be my reference point so you have a point to go to. And then who are your Camilles, where you share a fan with her? Or, you know, the, the way I am with Kabir. How, how, what is it that you share that allows you to embody the, the innocent parts of yourself as a human being and the parts of yourself that are turned toward virtue but are transparent and able to have a friend who can answer you back so when your practices goes out through you and back from them and out from them back through you. And then you'll find, oh, there is one of those surges of that ecstatic blessing where heaven is transmitting to me the bouquet. Oh, thank God I'm in an era when it is safe to be in Amy's garden. That would be fulfillment of the human being. And for us to live to say that there's a day when that is possible, it's a perfection. It's a perfection. It's the one thing we can give back to the heavens and the heavens bless us with. When you can't find it enough, don't fall out of balance, but realize, okay, what is caught in me that is needing to just bring attention back to the vessel, the vase, the parts of my mind, emotions, personality, body that need that attention? So that as I address that and I extend that out to other beings, it's able to as it's ripe, answer me back. 
don't don't be disturbed that you've shut it down and lost it. It'll it'll admin flow, and then you'll come back to it and realize there goes the water into wine. Yeah. I'll tell a tale on Bob. Bob was in California, and he was at around the redwoods and sequoias, and he doesn't know this, but I, I thought, oh, if only he could bring me back a sequoia pine cone. And I thought, oh, that's just so selfish of me. It was like the being in there stealing the roses, the flowers in the woman's garden. I thought, I just want him to be with the trees. But I, I just kept feeling the sense of the wish for the sequoias to continue. There was a wish for their capacity to continue. And the, the idea of their cones, because their cones are, you know, the trees are vast, and the cones are small. It surprises people. So, so what did Bob bring to me? Two sequoia cones. I knew he was. This is sort of a private story, but I need to say it as part of the emblem of it. When we taught the course about the twins here, however many years ago that was, uh, John and Elise had gone out visiting Yosemite within three months of that class, six months of that class, uh, and they saw the twin trees standing, the twin sequoias, and then one of them fell. And the rangers couldn't figure out why it fell. It wasn't sick. The ground around it didn't seem to be soft enough that it should have fallen. John's grief was almost inconsolable. Maybe they could take a crane and they could just stand it back up. Maybe they could, they could, they could do something. And then he read, they're not going to do anything. They're going to let it naturally be where it fell. And so I said to him, whether it's true or not, that tree was alive when Jesus was in a body. And I said, before I came forward to teach this class about talking about and writing about there being twins, I was aware, I don't think I'll die doing this, but there's something in the forest that is sacrificing itself. Because the trees remember the places where we didn't know how to get along. Like, who's the guru of the planet? I would say the forest. Vermont is, what, 72 to 80% forest. Largest population of that in the world, in the, in the world of the United States, forest. So what happened? A great tree, 2,000 years old or 3,000 years old, fell. Does it have anything to do with our talking about it here? It does, does to me, somehow. Somehow it was related. And yet here are the sequoia cones. So as we turn to the future, what will happen from eternity coming back to us through the sequoias, through this bouquet, in each of you, in your children, in your grandchildren? And so if we practice the virtue of that, it will always be answered. And that answer will always be stronger than the forgetting or the warfares of history. So it's like we've brought a letter of the alphabet to where we're going. This little group of us is brought. And this will be heard by people in different areas, the, the, the recordings of this. So, you know, there's a letter of the alphabet for every human being to practice who wants to. But we wouldn't be being answered in this way with that tremendous blessing and the ability to embody it 
if the heavens weren't already moving in a critical mass toward it. Right? We'd be being answered in a more individual and dissonant way. So something is happening unconsciously in the universal collective that is the human being. It doesn't know it's happening, but it's happening. And then consciously, you can be part of the way it's authored. Oh, it's in my nature to help author it this way. It would be in my nature to enjoy in great heat taking a fan. If I go to the symphony and it's really hot, I'll, I'll carry a little fan in a bag. And the woman next to me will go, oh, that's just so charming that you have something like that. I go, I know it's great, isn't it? It's so much fun. I love them. But it's a symbol to me also of the way I've met human beings all over the world. The way a young woman I love so much entered her marriage. Who will her children be? How long shall they live? What will the nature be of the bouquets that blossom through them? See, and then we all are there holding those urns, and then the water turns to wine. So just let yourself receive whatever that is coming from heaven and is just allow it through the rest of your life that you you willingly allow the divine to move through you and bless you in whatever way is that that pathway for you. And wish this for your spouses and your your parents and siblings and your children, your grandchildren. So what time is it now? What time are we at? Almost